of investors that were everyday people like me. You know, I, I heard of, you know, um, uh, PE teachers and a mother of five that uh, was also working a full-time job, et cetera, that were able to go out there and build these real estate portfolios using proven strategies that have been repeated over and over again. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocations. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires and Belt Podcast. This is episode number 341. Stace, it's kind of got a nice ring to it. 341. How's it going? What's going on in your world? Doing great. Another good week. Ready for it to warm up at some point. But other than freezing here in Texas, we're doing great. I know. I know. It is a little chilly, but we probably can't complain that much because... We only have a few weeks of this, and that's it. That's our winter. We have four seasons, contrary to popular belief. It's just uh, typically spring, summer, summer, fall, and two weeks of winter. <laughs> our kids also do not think it's winter because they walk out the door in shorts and t-shirts and then complain about being freezing, despite me suggesting very strongly every time when we leave the house that they need pants, sleeves, and a jacket. Anyway, we have... a. Uh, Actually, before we get into today's guest, if you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Always looking for new, uh, great guests, professions. If you haven't heard your story, if you haven't heard your profession, I'd love to talk to you, even if we have already. It's always great to uh, have new new guests. And today's guest is pretty unique, actually. This particular guest was essentially an air traffic controller and had a very, very different career path and then pulled one of the craziest stops out that we've ever heard of. And he cashed in his 401k and rolled the dice on real estate. And uh, yeah, net worth at $3.5 million all in real estate now. Uh, quite a remarkable story for sure. And I have to say that this particular interview lived rent-free in my brain for about three weeks. I could not stop thinking about what this guy is doing. So very interesting. I had a lot of questions <laughs> and uh, hope you love it. Yeah, so we're going to get into that with uh, him in just a second. But uh, also, if you haven't left us a review or rating, please do so. I had a couple of emails come in this week, too, about YouTube. Yes, we do publish on YouTube, but I have not published the video yet. Uh, that's in the works. I'm trying to figure out how to do that with keeping privacy with some of our guests, whether we blur stuff out or whatever, but we do record everything, and some guests are open to it. And uh, obviously, we're fine. I mean, I think people... I'm, I'm I'm fine being on the camera, so stays. And uh, I, mean, I tend to, I tend to wear some <laughs> I tend to wear some pretty cool shirts when I interview. To be fair, I've told Jace, please do not nothing that I've been recorded in because I am always like post bedtime. <laughs> he said I need a heads up if we're actually going to publish anything that that we that we record. Yeah, we'll figure that out. One of these days, it's uh, it's going to happen. But yeah, we do still publish to YouTube. It's just uh, the audio, though. But uh, at any rate, I uh, appreciate you all listening on all the different mediums. I think the major three now are YouTube, uh, iTunes, and then uh, Spotify. Oh, you know what? I was going to mention something crazy. So I was going through So I was gonna, I was going through year-end statistics. Which I know I'm a little nerd, which I used to track more frequently. But I started going through things. I had to give some shout outs because we've got some listeners 
that have been tuning in and growing with us all over the world. So the UAE is in the top 10. So shout out to uh, our listeners in the UAE. Ghana is in the top 20. So shout out to our listeners from Ghana and Singapore as well, which I know there's a lot of millionaires live in Singapore, and I've been there. In fact, our Uber driver was wearing a rock and a Rolex. So uh, if we could get some, some guests from Singapore or some of these other countries, I'm starting to look at our stats. So all y'all listen all over the world. I know there's a lot of y'all now. Uh, the other one that was crazy to me, Botswana. Top 20. Top 20 listeners in Botswana. I don't know what happened there for uh, this podcast to take off in Botswana. But uh, Colombia and Romania are up there too. Uh, top 25. And this one blows my mind. I had to look this one up. I actually remember this from my geography class. But I did go look up their population. This is Djibouti in Africa. And they're in the top 30, and they don't even, they have like a million people in their country. It's pretty amazing. And they're top top 30 from a listener standpoint to this podcast. So shout out to y'all. We've got several listeners all over the world now, but those ones are the ones that stuck out to me in the top 30, for sure. And shout out that Jace looked up how to pronounce it, because he almost called it DJ Booty, and uh, that, <laughs> that was not right. <laughs> A little foreshadowing, we do have a DJ coming up with a, with a net worth that will blow your mind, but it's pretty cool. But anyway, yes, I couldn't remember how to pronounce that. Uh, you know, it's a small little country, but uh, nonetheless, strong in force and uh, listenership to the podcast. So, appreciate that. Some interesting listener stats. Um, in fact, maybe we'll pull a bunch of these together for a Thursday episode and share with the share with the audience if they want but at any rate let's get into the interview with sean sean you wanted to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now yeah sure so i'll give you guys a quick version of it um i started out uh i, I grew up in louisville kentucky joined the navy while i was in college uh came out to san Diego, california was in the navy for five years as an air traffic controller uh got out of the navy and did air traffic control for the faa here in southern california i got to stay in san diego uh, basically while I had that job, I was making really good money. I felt like I had my dream job, but I was also working six days a week, really grinding hours as an air traffic controller. And I wanted to start investing my money to try and get out of that or, you know, just start building my wealth in some way. Long story short, I got started to get obsessed with real estate investing after I listened to the bigger pockets podcast, like five or six years ago. Um, and just it, a lot of things started clicking in my head and had a lot of light bulb moments of kind of understanding the direction I wanted to go with uh, real with my investing, which obviously being real estate. And from there, I really just dove all in. I mean, I liquidated my 401k to buy my first property with some friends, uh, fellow investors, um, which was a 32 unit apartment. Um, I basically dumped all my time and energy into real estate, uh, started a real estate podcast or a local real estate meetup and just kind of really uh, became obsessed in every way and eat, sleep, and breathe real estate. Um, flash, for, flash forward several years, and I now have a portfolio of over 300 um, multifamily apartment units. Uh, own a hotel that I'm actually selling and close on tomorrow, but still currently own a hotel and um, a lot of Airbnbs and things like that. And I've sold some properties as well. But now I am here today uh, talking to you guys. And so far, it's been a really great journey. Nice. And I want to get into the details, especially on the, the location of the 401k to get into real estate. But before we do, what's your net worth today? 
Uh, net worth today is around $3.5 million. I took about a million dollar hit over the past year, though, due to property values, commercial property values declining a bit, but they're still super ahead. So sitting pretty good. Dang, million dollar loss on paper, which we haven't had on the show. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're open to admit that. Does, does that change your psyche at, at all as, you, as it relates to investments? Or is it just, hey, it just is part of the game. You know, I'll make it back some other time. Yeah, it doesn't really change my perspective at all. This is all like, these are things that I basically expected. The good news is, is like, you know, while, I, while my net worth took a big hit because, you know, across my commercial real estate portfolio, it, it's largely due to, you know, capitalization rates decompressing, as we say, in the apartment investing world. My investments are all still performing well for me and my investors. I mean, we're still crushing it, but we were like, you know, we had hit home run grand slams if we would have sold like a year and a half ago or a year ago. But because of the interest rate environment, those values have declined. But at the same time, they've declined on paper. I don't really lose that money, you know, per se, unless I sell it. Um, and I fully expect the, the interest rates to go back down eventually. You know, who knows when, but when they do, that will only increase my net worth back up. Yeah, for sure. So at this point, is it all in real estate? It's 100% in real estate. I have no other investments outside of real estate now. Okay. Yeah. And, and as a real estate investor, how do you think about liquidity, keeping cash on hand? Do you keep any of that? Walk us through Absolutely. that a bit. It's actually extremely important to me. You know, and for a number of reasons. Uh, in, in the commercial real estate world, when you're you know, investing in commercial-sized apartments and stuff, the banks require you to have liquidity. So generally speaking, the sponsor, the person signing on, people signing on the loan have, a, have to have a collective liquidity of 10% of the loan amount post-close, after you close. They want to make sure that you don't have it and then like that's your down payment or something, right? So I'm, I'm technically required to have it. But I've also been through some hurdles in my investing career that made me realize the importance of having even more liquidity. And I'll give you an example. On my very first ever real estate investment, which was a 32-unit apartment in Greenwood, Indiana, which we ended up crushing it on, we ran out of money um, to continue with renovations and stuff. A lot of things went wrong that we didn't account for. I learned a lot of lessons. Uh, But we had to go and borrow money to complete the business plan and get out of that hole which we were lucky to find a private investor that let us borrow $200,000. But those kind of experiences made me realize why the bank requires you to have that liquidity. Because if things go wrong, you know, you can, you'll always have contingency capital that you build in, which I, you know, have a lot of extra contingency capital nowadays because of those experiences. But if, the, if, if something goes severely wrong and there needs to be a gap that's filled, that's why the bank wants you to have liquidity. So nowadays, you know, I keep a healthy bank account for that reason to as like the last ditch resort if I needed to make up the difference to for me and my investors. And is there a percentage that you try to keep or is it just kind of ebb and flow a little bit based on what your deals flow looks like and what the cash flow looks like on a month to month basis? How do you think about that? I mean, there's not a percentage that I'm going to keep uh, like for... So on top, I always have at least 20 to 30% contingency capital for each property. And then my personal liquidity, I don't like then do like, for example, another 10 or 20% for each property, because then I would have like way too much money in cash in the bank that could be earning me money. Generally, I just have a rule of thumb of a couple hundred thousand dollars. I have a certain dollar amount that I know would not only be able to carry me if things go wrong and pay for my living expenses, but most kind of issues that could come up in real estate, you know, like uh, something 
large damages happen. I've even had a dam that was holding up a pond at one of my properties uh, start to fail. And that was a $100,000 fix. So I've just, you know, me personally, if I have a couple hundred thousand dollars and something goes wrong on one or two of my properties, that's a really big deal, then I can cover it. Interesting. So let's walk back just to, to the beginning of a little bit of this, liquidating the 401k. Walk us through that. Did you pay the penalties? Did you roll it in? How much did you end up kind of starting with at that point? So the 401k liquidation, I could definitely go down a whole rabbit hole on like why I did it, et cetera. I didn't have to pay the penalty because I pulled it out during COVID. So uh, when COVID started, as if some of the people out there listening don't know, they removed the 10% penalty that you have to pay if you were to withdraw from your 401k. And in addition to that, you can pay your um, uh, taxes over a three-year period. And so I withdrew during COVID to allow myself to do that. Uh, so I didn't have to pay that. And um, I used that to invest in my first real estate deal. And uh, it was only $78,000. So it wasn't a substantial like, amount, like a crazy amount of money. Um, but I partnered with five other people with that money to pull that money together and go buy a 32-unit apartment. So for me, you know, I was able to pay the taxes over a three-year period instead of all at once. Um, and without the penalties, it just made total sense for me to do it then and there. And just because for a lot of reasons, I, I believe in real estate a lot more than I do a 401k. Okay. So Sean, take me back prior to even liquidating this 401k. You're working as an air traffic controller. You've got what you described earlier as, as one of your dream jobs, dream scenarios. I mean, all that money had been invested in the market. What flipped? Was it really an episode of the Bigger Pockets podcast? Was it a collective group of episodes? How did that transpire in your mind? Well, the decision to like liquidate that 401k and really get into real estate investing, it was a series of, yeah, Bigger Pockets episodes because I started listening and hearing story after story of investors that were everyday people like me. You know, I, I heard of, you know, um, uh, PE teachers and, a mother of five that uh, was also working a full-time job, et cetera, that were able to go out there and build these real estate portfolios using proven strategies that have been repeated over and over again. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And so it, it, it was, it was, that's what really was the catalyst to get me super interested in real estate investing. And the more I studied, because I was all into my 401k, I mean, I was maxing it out for several years, actually, uh, maxing out my contributions. But what I realized is it, what I really started to understand was ca the cash flow benefits of real estate and the tax benefits of real estate. And when I thought about like, you know, I studied 401ks, you know, 4% withdrawal rates, et cetera, whenever you reach retirement age. And some of the things that didn't make sense to me and, and put real estate above that for me was the fact that 401ks are nothing but a nest egg, right? You're investing in index funds. And as you get closer to retirement, you're likely moving that more into bonds and things that are less risky. But at the end of the day, when you're going to start withdrawing from that, you're literally selling off shares. And the idea is you're going to withdraw that and, uh, and withdraw from that and sell those shares at a rate to where you will outlive uh, or you're, you won't uh, um, 
run out of money before you die is what I was trying to say. And the difference with real estate is if I build up a real estate portfolio over this entire time, that's putting cash in my pocket every single month, over time, I'm actually getting richer with real estate as to getting poorer. With a 401k, I mean, eventually it's going to run out um, unless you're doing like a 1% withdrawal rate or something that's so low that it's able to maintain itself. But over time, your net worth is decreasing with a 401k as you're withdrawing. The exact opposite is true with real estate. If I'm cash flowing on a property 500 bucks a month right now, in 20 years, that will easily be cash flowing double that, if not more. And that trend continues over time. My cash flow increases over time. The appreciation increases over time. The list goes on and on. And my wealth is increasing. And then I can pass that wealth on to the next generation if I so choose to. Whereas, you know, that's much harder to do with the 401k because you're probably withdrawing from it for a lot. So for all of these reasons, and then you combine that with the fact that my main goal was to retire early. I wanted to quit that job and be able to have all my time back and choose what I do with my time. If I wanted to expedite that and do that quickly, maxing out my 401k wasn't going to do it. I needed to do something more drastic and real estate was that vehicle that allowed me to do that. And I did quit my air traffic control job last year in March. So, uh, you know, I think that 401ks are definitely, they make sense for a lot of people. Uh, for me, it didn't make sense. And, you know, I was drawn to real estate and it, it worked and it's working still. So I love real estate. I, I just think it's way more superior. Okay, Sean, I'm gonna press you on something because we hear this a lot. You're young, you've crushed it in real estate. This, the concept of, you know, re, well, 1031 till you die to mm -hmm. potentially pass on the benefits of real estate and appreciation to the next generation over five, six decades. I mean, how realistic is that, that you'll be able to execute that strategy, do everything from a 1031 standpoint within you know, the, the IRS bounds that, that are out there. Mm -hmm. I think it's extremely realistic. I watch it every, all, all the time. I have mentors that have done it many times over. Now, obviously it's unpredictable whether or not the government will even keep those kind of programs. I mean, you could probably argue that it's more likely over time they'll remove those kind of tax benefits so that they can have more tax revenue. But I, you know, the benefits are there right now and I've used them and they work. And I'll, I, and I'll even kind of rebuff some of what I've said before by saying this. I've had the opportunity to network and have a great mentor and other people around me that have earned, you know, become millionaires many, many, many times over, uh, net worth close to $100 million. Not one of those people got anywhere close to that from 401ks. Obviously, 401ks for a lot of people that are living a middle-class lifestyle, that have a good job, that want to stay at that job and then have a modest retirement that they can enjoy, it makes sense for them that don't, and they don't want to like learn a whole new thing and do all this stuff. But all of the people that I've met that have an extreme amount of wealth did it through real estate. I've never met anybody else that did it via 401k. So that those are some of the things that really rang true for me and like became those aha moments. But yeah, like the tax strategies, you know, doing the bonus accelerated depreciation and being able to write off most of that income every single year. I mean, I've seen it happen. I past two years, I've paid basically no taxes. Um, the ability to keep acquiring new properties to do more, uh, use that depreciation on the previous properties I bought. All of these tax strategies are alive and well, and I've seen them working. Thanks for sharing. You've gone from being an air traffic controller to a real estate traffic controller. And you know, I, when I first read your spreadsheet and how you had liquidated your 401k, I was going to ask if you regret it, but I don't need to ask that anymore because you said <laughs> right? <laughs> you're confident in the strategy. I'm here for it. 
I'm absolutely. And like, I, I don't mean to like also like bash 401ks for everyone because I think they do make sense. And to be clear, a lot of things went my way. I timed the market really well. It's not like I'm not over here saying I'm a genius or something like that. And none of the strategies that I've used were invented by me or anything like that. I, I copied what other people have done. Um, and it could have gone the other way. Like on that very first deal that I did where I told you I was running out of money and had to go borrow more money to complete the business plan. Now I ended up doing really well and tripling that investment actually. And a lot of that had to do with the timing of the market. Um, it had to do with the fact that I was able to find somebody to lend me that money. And I learned from those mistakes and it, it, it helped me be the investor that I am today. But I could have eat, just as well have lost that money and things didn't go well and I lost all that 401k that I pulled out. There are risks associated with real estate. Uh, in particular, if you're you know, if you don't have somebody with you that's seasoned to teach you things. So those mistakes happened before I had a mentor. So I always recommend anyone that wants to, you know, try to replicate this kind of success, find somebody that's really successful and replicate what they did. Um, but yeah, like I will freely admit that it could have gone very wrong and I could have lost everything and had to restart over. What was your net worth when you transitioned to this real estate investment strategy? So I would say like, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I calculated it, but considering the fact I only had $78,000 in my 401k at the time, I think that, uh, you know, at that time I did not have my first condo that I lived in yet. I would say my net worth was probably below $100,000. And how long did it take you to get your first million? To get my first million dollars, it took me about two years. Um, and that was because, you know, me and my business partners raised a bunch of money from investors, went and bought, you know, some larger apartment complexes with my mentor, you know, 150 unit complexes. And we, within a, a year of buying those complexes, we had already renovated a ton of units and got way higher rents for the renovated units. And it just ballooned the value of those assets. So for example, we bought one of those properties at 12.7 million dollars with our investors. And today, even with the high interest rates, it's valued at $20.5 million. And so obviously a lot of that profit goes to the investors and then I'm splitting it with a lot of other people involved in the deal. But within two years of buying those properties and implementing that business plan, my net worth skyrocketed. How were you even involved in that first transaction when your own personal net worth was so much lower than the ticket cost on that investment? Good question. So, you know, and to kind of frame it, when you're doing commercial size real estate loans, the bank wants the people signing on that loan to have a combined net worth equal to or greater than the loan amount. And then obviously that 10% liquidity that I mentioned. So in order to meet that, I partnered with five other people, two other air traffic controllers that invested a lot more money than me. And then three other guys, uh, you know, that were either one other coworker and two guys we met at the real estate meetup that we hosted. And our combined net worths were equal, were able to meet that amount. And same thing with all the other metrics, uh, post-closed liquidity. Um, and one guy that we brought on to the deal actually was a guest on Bigger Pockets, and he had done multiple apartment complexes before, and he played a smaller role, but his uh, experience combined with everyone else's money was able to win us the loan from the bank. So I definitely would not have been able to do that like by myself, like having a doing a joint venture with partners was how I was able to get that accomplished. What gave you the confidence to dive straight into multifamily 
and particularly in another state than we were living in. Yeah, right. You know, to get that confidence, I it was the amount of studying that I had done, which to be fair, you can do an unlimited amount of studying and nothing, there's never going to be enough that will prepare you to actually doing deals and not making mistakes, in my opinion. Like there, you're always going to learn more from the school of hard knocks. And I did, but I really felt confident because I had other partners that had done some, uh, done one other partner that had done real estate deals like that before. For, and several other partners that we could all we were all putting our heads together. Um, it, that made me feel more confident that I wasn't doing this alone, that it was less likely that I would make a bunch of mistakes if I had all of these heads coming together. So I think that's the number one reason um, I had all, by that time, you know, I thought I knew a lot about commercial real estate with all the books that I'd read, all the studying I'd done online, all the podcasts I'd listened to. But I think at the end of the day, the partnerships are what made me feel super confident. Are you also an agent on your deals? No. And most of the, all the deals that we do, um, you know, real estate agents don't uh, transact these kind of deals. These are commercial real estate brokers. So, you know, guys that have people that have had a lot more experience and have a higher qualification. But yeah, I had no interest in getting that accolade. It doesn't really help with the business at all, especially since, you know, when you're doing the commercial uh, size properties, like it's not like, uh, you know, the um, residential real estate where like the buying and selling representative agents get to like split a commission that doesn't happen with uh, commercial real estate. So I wouldn't have gotten like a benefit there, you know, by getting some money kicked back to me or anything like that. Sure. And how many Airbnbs or smaller rental properties do you have? So I have four Airbnbs or smaller rental properties um, that are all like higher end Airbnbs that all have been doing awesome. I'm still a believer in Airbnb if you do it right. Um, but outside of that, the rest of them are via partnerships and raising money and with my investors. Are your rental properties in California or elsewhere? So all of my, most of my properties are outside of California. So we have 300 units in Greensboro, North Carolina. We had 32 units in Greenwood, Indiana, but sold that last year. We have uh, a hotel, a boutique hotel that's on the coastline up in Northern California that we're actually selling and should close hopefully tomorrow. And then I have an Airbnb in Indiana, one in Louisville, Kentucky, and then two here in San Diego. So not, oh, excuse me. And then we also have one more newer project here in San Diego that's in Ocean Beach that is a single family home where we're adding nine units to it. So it's going to be a 10 unit apartment complex when it's done, which is, I guess, a good way for me to tell you guys about like that strategy that I'm focusing on now. But now I am focusing exclusively on San Diego. Let's dive into that because it's okay. such a hard market in California because uh, generating income as an investor is is really challenging with uh, with the cost of living and, and cost of property. Absolutely. And that's one of the primary reasons why I was never interested in investing here, like out and why all of my investments have largely been out of state. But that all changed when San Diego changed their municipal code to allow for this new strategy that I'm focusing on and that I even wrote a free ebook on. But I'm sure a lot of people have heard of ADUs or accessory dwelling units. They're really popular in California, less so on the East Coast. But essentially, you know, California started this because they have a unique problem of needing to increase density. And, but the zoning laws around California make it difficult to do that and there's a lack of buildable land. So they put this law in to essentially allow people to do basically up to two additional units that they can add to any single family home and skirt around a lot of the other traditional development laws and rules and faster permitting, things like that. Well, San Diego took that a step further because San Diego has a unique problem. So for context, San Diego has the least amount of buildable land in the country 
next to Miami. It's geographically constrained by the ocean to the west. You got Mexico to the south, mountainous terrain to the east that's expensive to build on, and then Camp Pendleton military base to the north. All of the flat buildable land has been taken. So there's basically no vacant land for them to continue building new housing. And most of the city is single family zoning. So you combine that with the fact that San Diego uh, is a growing market. You got a lot of people moving. San Diego is one of the top destinations for people leaving the Bay Area. And it's also now the number three uh, biotech hub in the nation. And so job growth has been exponential in San Diego, and it's become the most competitive rental market in California and one of the most competitive in the city. On average, 17 people are competing for the same apartment unit. Shopify is the e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers into buyers. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business and take it to the next level. Sign up for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash unveiled. That's all lower coast. Go to shopify.com unveiled to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash unveiled. And thanks to Shopify supporting for supporting today's episode. So I tell you all that because San Diego, the way they're trying to combat this is by increasing density. And so they've taken the ADU laws in California and they made their own program called the bonus ADU program. So essentially you can add an unlimited number of these accessory dwelling units to a property. So long as it's in certain sections of like, they have what they call the transit priority area, but basically there's a map, certain areas, you can add an unlimited number of these ADUs up to the floor area ratio of the lot. So in essence, where a single family home existed before, you can put a 10 unit, 20 unit, I've even seen 30 and 40 unit apartment complexes. And so this strategy kind of blew the lid off of my kind of perception of investing here in Southern California, because we can build these units for on average around $200,000 per apartment unit, but they sell on average for $450,000 or more per door. On top of that, I'm not inheriting tenants that might be old bad tenants um, where I can't kick them out in California. I get to place my own tenants. And since I have new product, um, I'm getting better tenants with better paying jobs. And then finally, because I've been talking for a long time, I know the other one of the main reasons why I love this strategy is because I'm able to buy an existing house that I can rent out and produce income while I'm waiting for my permits. Whereas like traditional development, you're buying an empty lot, it's making zero money. And while you're waiting for your permits for a couple of years, you still got to pay taxes. You still got to pay down the loan and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so those holding costs or what they call them can really hurt developers. And so it kind of removes all of that. And there's a whole slew of other reasons why I got interested in this strategy. And so that's what I'm focusing on now. And, and to do these ADUs, are you taking on capital from investors or is this something that you're doing with your own dollars at this point? Both. So I invest in every single one of my deals alongside my investors, but we do raise money from investors. So we syndicate these projects. So we'll raise, you know, anywhere from one to $3 million for a project like this. And we raise that money from our investors, go and use that money to buy the property, fix it up, add the units, 
And then later on down the line, we sell the property and split the profits with the investors. So are these teardowns then after you get the permits, are you tearing the property down and then building something new there? No, we are leaving the existing house for two reasons. Number one, the one like kind of like I alluded to before, like the ability to generate income is important for us. Um, so for example, I have a project here in San Diego where we got an Airbnb permit and we're actually cash flowing and, you know, bringing in on average $10,000 a month in Airbnb revenue while we're waiting for permits. But two, a lot of the regulations, depending on where you're building, if you remove like 50% or more of the walls, then you have to go through this like hearing process and get the community involved and all this hoopla that you basically don't want to do. So we just avoid that altogether. So we're, but you know, probably the second part of your question, um, that's why we target very specific kinds of lots. So it's got to be a certain size lot. You know, generally we're looking for 7,000 square foot lots or, or greater with alley access. So it's easier for them to get back there for construction. We like a smaller house that's situated on the front of the lot. So we've got a big backyard to be able to build like a three-story structure, for example, that has units on each floor. So, you know, that's just some of the criteria, I guess. That's interesting. Do you, do you foresee any slowdown in, in executing this with interest rates rising and, and being as high as they are right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's slowed down big time. It's, it's getting way harder to make deals pencil. You know, um, the project uh, that my recent project, the only reason why that one penciled well was because we were able to get seller financing from the seller. 80% loan to value on that with a low interest rate compared to the market. You know, that was the whole crux of that deal making sense for us. But I anticipate it being like really tough. Like we're doing a lot of marketing for deals. And I think the main thing is definitely the debt. You know, whenever you've got these high interest rates, then the debt service coverage ratio the banks want to see is harder to hit. So that means, you know, a lot of these projects, we, we might only be able to get 50% loan to value, which you know, can kill most deals. So it's making it more challenging, but that's not to say that deals can't happen. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it. Seller financing, if you can find the right seller that it makes sense for is the number one way to get it done. Number two, you know, there's always opportunities also to partner with the seller, which is something I'm trying to work through with some sellers now. As far as like, hey, you know, maybe selling for you isn't the best idea and buying at this interest rate isn't the best idea, but we can also have you join this LLC that's purchasing the property and give you a cut of the equity so that instead of making how much you'd make just selling it, you'll make way more. And then we also save money on the purchase. So there's a lot of ways, basically, I think in, that, in today's day and age, it takes creativity in wheeling and dealing to get it done. So that project here in San Diego, we got seller financing. We were able to get an Airbnb permit, which, uh, which makes a huge difference since we can generate so much more income. And the list kind of goes on. So I think that it, we're going to continue seeing a slowdown in development uh, and real estate transactions across the board because of the interest rates and because so many sellers don't even want to sell because then they got to go buy a house with a new interest rate and they don't want to do that. Yeah. How, I mean, from a, from a seller standpoint, just for our listeners, why would somebody be willing to seller finance in the first place? Good question. So I'll use the seller that we did this seller financing to give a, a really good example. This guy lived in that home, owned it free and clear for a really long time. He owned several other properties around the beach in San Diego. And he is an older guy that wanted to sell all of his assets, move to Texas and live on his ranch. 
that he was going to buy. So he told us all of this. And let's stop you know, that strategy right now. We don't need any more people moving to Texas and getting branches. <laughs> from California. From California. <laughs> we, Sorry, don't, we don't need any more. Maybe he won't vote. I don't know. <laughs> he just but, wants uh, an ag exemption. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, uh, the, all the California money going out there isn't helping with home prices either. But um, yeah, he, he was one of them. And, you know, he, he, w- once we understood his motivation uh, for selling and, and ha- understanding that he didn't need the money right this second, those are the kind of sellers that it makes sense for. Obviously, if you're a family and you need the money because you got to go buy your next house, worst person to ask. In general, people that own it like, you know, almost free and clear or, you know, no debt, have owned it for a long time, have other assets, those people make more sense. So once we knew that, then it was just a matter of, you know, showing him like, hey, this deal doesn't work for us at the price you're asking. Uh, for us, it, we, we were offering him four hundred or $600,000 less than what he was selling it for because he was trying to sell it for $2 million. It's a half a mile from the beach on a hill. All of these units, by the way, are going to have ocean views. So it was a very, very good spot. And we were offering him 1.4 just because that's what how the numbers penciled at debt and interest rates we were looking at. So we told him, we said, look, if you're willing to sell it to us, uh, we'll, we'll come up to 1.85. If you're willing to sell it to us at seller financing, so where we only have to put 20% down and we'll do a 5.4% interest rate. If you do this for us, it's only uh, or $150,000 less than what you're asking, but you will make more than $2 million over the course of this loan term via these payments. And if, we, if anything goes wrong, if if we default on our debt to you, you get the property back. It's all yours all, all over again. If we've added value to renovate it, you get a free renovation. So the risk was lower for him outside of having to go through the arduous process of that. But um, we just outlined for him, like our strategy is usually to send like two offers, for example, where we'll say, all right, we'll give you 1.4 clean current transaction, or we'll give you 1.85 at this seller financing. Here's what your monthly payments will be every month. Over the course of this three years, instead of making 2 million, you'll make 2.2 million. So if you're willing to wait a little bit longer, you'll make substantially more money. Um, and there's not as much risk in, in this as you might expect. So with seller financing, a key thing to remember is you have to educate the seller. Because if you just say, hey, are you interested in seller financing? If they know nothing about it, if they don't know the risks associated with it, and they've never talked to anybody about it, they're just immediately going to tell you no. Thanks for thanks for sharing. And and there's that education piece that's really important for, for the seller, particularly you've got an older seller who's obviously not been through this before. So my mind is still blown on these ADU rules because that's quite the accessory dwelling unit if you're adding a four-story <laughs> complex to a piece of property. What is this doing to property values of surrounding property. Say for instance, I'm in a single family home and I have always lived next door to my next door neighbor. And now I have a huge apartment complex. I mean, is that driving, obviously your value has gone way up because you're the property owner of that, those units, but what is this doing to surrounding areas uh, with it's, these kind of ADU add-ons? It's not, I think that that's a, a concern that a lot of community members have, and it's absolutely not decreasing their home values. If anything, making it more because the home that we did buy, by the way, was a dump um, that the guy lived in. And no offense, I hope he doesn't hear this, but it needed a lot of work and it was an eyesore uh, on this corner. We're building a beautiful 
three-story building where what existed there before was was not very attractive to the community for one. So it is improving the look and feel of the neighborhood. For two, if you own dirt a half a mile from the beach in San Diego, California, I don't care what they build next to it. Your value is not going down. You're the, I, and I know, understand that concern, but I'd bet every dollar I got or ever will have for the rest of my life that their property values are not going to decrease because of this building being there. It, there's been tons of other projects uh, throughout San Diego, just like this one that have been built. And the data is there that their values are not going down. They're still going up substantially. So I think that, you know, while I understand some of these concerns, though, but to be honest with you, you know, here in San Diego and in California, we have this term called NIMBYs. Um, you may have heard it before. It stands for not in my backyard. Everybody wants more housing here in San Diego because of the housing shortage but they just don't want it to be built next to them. And it's been a huge problem. In fact, Gavin Newsom, our governor, said that NIMBYism is destroying our state. And it's because people continuously have band together to block new neighborhoods, new buildings from being built. And so the city hasn't been able to grow. So to put it into perspective, in, the, in San Diego's 2021 annual report on housing, they said they need to build 105,000 new homes by 2029, okay? In order to do that, they have to be building over 15,000 uh, homes each year since uh, they released that report. They've only been building 5,000. I think in 2021, they built 5,033. And that's been their average for a long time. They need to more than triple the number of housing that they've been building in order to meet the demand and is basically not happening. The median uh, home price for a home here is just shy of a million dollars. The typical rent for a one bedroom is over 3000 and depending if it's a nicer place, it's over $4,000. So I understand the community wanting their community to stay the same. They want them to be still single family homes with their quaint beach towns and these nice neighborhoods around San Diego. But if you keep the city from growing, it hurts everybody. And I know that you, you, know, you want your place, you don't want an, a, a big apartment next to it. That's a very valid concern and maybe I wouldn't want it either. But the city had to make, has to make a choice. It's either we literally don't build any more housing and see what happens, which is what they've been doing, and it just continues to get worse, and then you end up with more slums throughout the city, or you build as much housing as you possibly can to relieve that pressure. And I think that's the choice that the city made. Interesting. So as, as we see trends in general from an expense standpoint in California, I mean, are you pretty bullish that population trends are going to continue to increase there over the next you know, decade? Decade, two decades? Absolutely. In San Diego, yes. Especially with, you know, how big the biotech and tech expansion in San Diego is. Uh, Apple's campus has gotten way bigger here in San Diego. And the amount of biotech that's moving here is pretty mind boggling. I think 27% of all jobs requiring a doctoral degree were in biotech or bioengineering uh, in the past couple of years. And the fact that there's a giant military presence in the military, the, actually San Diego military presence is the largest on the planet. It's the largest concentration of military assets on the planet. And the country is what they call the Pacific pivot. Due to the threat of China and the Pacific Ocean, they're moving a lot more assets over here. I mean, the list kind of goes on. Yes, I do believe it's going to continue growing. I think that, you know, the dips in population trend you see in California as a whole alarm a lot of people. But when you live here and you see the housing shortage, I mean, I think that this city would have to drop its population an insane amount for it to really make a difference. When you have this many people competing for a 
rental units and homes. I just don't see it going away. Just like New York City, it's not going anywhere. You know, people will get on the news and say, oh, you know, there's this max exit from these major cities. In some cases, it's true. I think San Francisco is definitely seeing the worst of it. But I, I'm really bullish on San Diego. I really don't see there being an, any issue with population or demand for housing. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I want to switch gears and touch touch on one uh, other topic here before we get into uh, rapid fire questions, and that's Airbnbs. We've seen, you know, a little bit of a decline across different markets. You know, some say it's the economy. Some say it's the oversaturation. would love to hear kind of your thoughts related to the Airbnb model and, and as it's affected you with multiple all over the country. Happy to. So I think the thing with Airbnb that a lot of people, you know, you've you heard about those trends with Airbnb. Airbnb bust and, you know, going out on Twitter, which I think was, in my opinion, was a joke because there's tweets of people saying they made like zero dollars and zero occupancy, this and that. The days of you being able to get a property, throw some cheap furniture in it, put it online and make a bunch of money are over with Airbnb. In order to do really, really well with Airbnb, you have to set yourself apart and you have to invest heavily. So I think like your middle of the road Airbnbs are always going to struggle. I do think there are markets that are way oversaturated. I think that if you go to Joshua Tree National Park, I think it's oversaturated. Big Bear in California, oversaturated. A lot of the places around Orlando and Disney are way oversaturated. So I think it's a you can still absolutely crush it. If you pick markets that personally actually like markets now that either already have um, regulations to restrict the supply and there's a way for me to get a permit or a place that's like either outright bandit and just doesn't have that heavy, heavy volume yet. But, um, you know, nowadays, for example, uh, let's use my Indianapolis property, for example, which grosses on average sixteen dollars to $18,000 a month. It's a large five-bedroom, six-bath home. Uh, we've got a, a shipping container pool that um, is heated, a huge, you know, hot tub and like there's $80,000 invested just into the landscaping and design of the backyard. It's really set itself apart so that we're now like competing against way fewer people. If you were to look up a place that has a pool and a hot tub in Indianapolis that can sleep 10 people or more, I think only like three places come up. So I think doing things like that, uh, having EV chargers, thing, just amenities that are people might, uh, you know, put in the filter. Those are always going to help you in design photos. And there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but, you know, here in San Diego, my, my duplex still absolutely crushing it. Uh, I have my one in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they have really strict regulations, but I was able to get a property, a brand new built uh, home that was built on a commercially zoned lot, which allows me to operate it as a bed and breakfast so that I don't have to worry about the regulations. Here in San Diego, they have regulations. I, and I was able to get a permit early on in the um, uh, lottery. Uh, so, you know, my competition, a lot of my competition was wiped out. So I just think that if I were to sum it up, because I know I kind of ramble, sorry about that. But uh, I think that with Airbnb, it's becoming tougher and you have to really understand the data and you have to invest a lot more heavily in the property in order for it to do well. Interesting. Do you think regulation or, or pending regulation in some of these cities will will really squash some of the bu business models such as, you know, may happen in like a New York City or something? Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. I, I think that like what happened in New York City, I don't think very many cities are gonna do the same thing because so many cities just recently adopted regulation and I don't see them like, you know, anytime soon going and amending that regulation to outright ban it. You know, San Diego even states in the regulations that they're gonna revisit it in two years. I think that the regulations are certainly upending that business model for a lot of people. I've heard of people and know people that had, you know, 10 Airbnbs in San Diego. Well, they changed the rules to make it to where one individual is allowed to have one Airbnb. And so I, I'm able to have my duplex because I had someone else apply for a permit, which they said, say is okay, uh, you know, for them to have the other half of my Airbnb. But, um, you know, if you've got a portfolio of a bunch in San Diego, I mean, you're essentially screwed unless you kind of try and skirt around those rules somehow. I think that, you know, there's, I know a lot of people that are still like, that's their primary way of investing and they do crush it um, around the country and they know what they're doing. I think that you've just really, it's, it's tough if that's going to be your sole model of investing in real estate, you know, over the next 10 years, just because I think over the next 10 years plus, you're just going to see it get restricted more and more and more. Yeah. And do you manage these through a property manager or location manager in all these cities? I, I manage them myself currently. And the reason why oh, wow. is because I have a ton of systems in place to automate most things to where I put in very little work. You know, you pay a property manager and you're going to be paying 20% or more of your gross income for them to manage it. And what I've realized is a lot of them stink at, at, at managing to be honest. So I have a lot of systems in place. You know, I, my pricing is managed using using third party software that's dynamic pricing, etc. I have automated messaging software that can detect if somebody says, hey, can we check in early? And I've got a canned response I send to them. I have a, a trash guy that I pay to go every single week and pull the trash cans out for the trash day and put them back. I have a propane guy that I can call same day and have him swap out propane tanks. My cleaning staff, they have access to the calendar so that I don't have to prompt them and tell them when to clean. So, you know, my interaction with my Airbnbs is three times a week. I spend about 10 minutes looking at my my dynamic pricing and setting my, my algorithm the way I want it to be. And then every once in a while, answering a very specific question from a guest. But outside of that, I've got a ton of systems in place where I don't have to spend a lot of time on it. And I do better than any of the property managers out there that I see. Wow, that's awesome. Well, let's uh, wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive uh, pair of shoes that you've ever purchased? Not that expensive, probably. Uh, actually, you know what? Actually, my trail runners, those are probably like 140 bucks. But, uh, you know, I put a lot of miles in those bad boys. Okay. I'm laughing because you're the third person in like the last month who spent $140 on a pair of, the, the other ones have been like Nike, but we got a lot of runners around here. Spend of money mean, on some running shoes. I mean, I don't even actually use them for running. I use them for backpacking. So my favorite hobby is backpacking in national parks, you know, with my tent and food and everything on my back. And I go for like a couple of days. I'm actually going not this weekend, but the following weekend. And trail runners are just the best for doing that, in my opinion. Nice. What about the most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Oh, man. Oh, that's going to be an embarrassing one. I've spent $700 um, at a restaurant before. But to be fair, it was like, you know, A5 Wagyu and stuff like that, which is always crazy expensive. And I definitely went all out and bought wine and stuff too. But uh, yeah, that was by far the craziest. For you and one other or how many? Me and one other. $700. Was it worth it? Uh, Worth it for one time. I, the food is like the best food I've ever had in my life. It's a restaurant con anime here in San Diego, but like, that's not something I want to do on the regs. (laughs) That was a special occasion. (laughs) 
Okay. What about the uh, most expensive trip or experience that you've paid on, paid for? The most expensive trip that I've paid for was probably my Euro trip that uh, one of my Euro trips that I've taken where I like went all over Europe and went to multiple music festivals. You know, this was when I was a little younger, but uh, you know, that probably spent like five grand on that trip. So, I mean, it's nothing like super crazy, crazy. I mean, I'm sure people spent way more on trips, but, uh, but yeah, all in, I think it was something like that. Okay. What's a key lesson that you learned from childhood? Ooh, work ethic. I say that because my parents are both extremely hard workers and that I really feel like they instilled that into me and they made a point to do it. I mean, from as long as I can remember, we had chores printed on a piece of paper and me, my brother and sister had our names taped to a magnet uh, that was on the refrigerator and we'd rotate through list of chores each week. Uh, and you know, from that to working with my dad when I was younger. And then I got my first job at 16 years old, working full time, basically, and never stopped. And so I, I think that the, the work ethic and the lessons my my mom and dad taught me have always stuck with me. And I felt like made me one of those people that's willing to put in like more hours and work harder and stuff like that. Okay. What's, uh, what was your first job? First job was when I worked at the movie theater, uh, concessions at, uh, at the movie theater around the corner from my house, 16 years old, uh, filling popcorn bags and all that kind of stuff. Nice. What's the, uh, an hour, six fifty. Nice. Yeah. Big bucks. What's the, uh, craziest thing you've ever done to earn money? Craziest thing I've ever done to earn money. Hmm. Liquidated this 401k. Yeah. Right. That, that, I would say that that's probably the fairest answer because outside of that, I've never really done anything crazy to earn money. I, the worst job I ever had was uh, being a dishwasher at uh, Bob Evans and that kind of sucked, but uh, that's not crazy though. I would say liquidating my 401k is the easy answer. Okay. What's the most fun that you've ever had with money? Ooh, the most fun that I've ever had with money was probably back in like 2015 or 2016 when I went on one of those Euro trips with uh, with my best friends and we went to Tomorrowland in Belgium and then went to, uh, you know, Croatia. And I mean, I spent a bunch of money doing that trip, but I mean, I just had so much fun and so many good memories. That's an easy one. Definitely. Okay. What's a, uh, a closely held belief that you once had that you recently changed your mind on? Oh, that's another really good question. A closely held belief. You know, I think that uh, something that I recently changed my mind on, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't want it to stump me, but uh, I think kind of what I want in life changed uh, a couple of years ago where I really took a step back uh, because I started to, you know, as I made more money, uh, my, my living expenses, I, the lifestyle creep started to happen. And I really thought that like spending money on nicer apartments and things like that was was what I really wanted. And uh, that belief just really changed um, when I started, you know, going backpacking and getting out in nature and things like that and realizing what I need at a minimum to be really, really happy. And so after that, I got back to frugality and, re and stuck to the basics in life. I mean, I don't even own a car right now. Like I I, I, I just completely did a 180 and went right back to frugality because it's where I'm comfortable and it, it keeps me grounded in doing what it is that I want to do. So I don't know if that really answers that question, but that's what came in my head. Okay. Is there any net worth goal or number of doors or, or anything out there that, that you see in your future that you're working towards? You know, I used to have these like number of doors, uh, goals and, and how many millions of dollars I wanted. But now really, if I were to boil it down to like the one thing, the one goal that I'm really striving to, to be quite honest with you is 
and I'm going to give two because one of them is kind of not really a personal goal is I want to be able to help my family and and retire both my parents because they basically can't retire. So once some of these assets start selling, I want to be able to pay off their houses so they could retire. Like that's a big goal of mine. The other goal though, that's the personal goal is I want a house with this. I just want a house where I can have a view either of the ocean or of some mountains so I can sit there and drink coffee and stare at it in the morning and at night. And it's as simple as that. I just, uh, I want to be able to relax with the views and, and uh, I'll feel like I've made it when I've got that. I play that game all the time. I feel like I've made it when. So does my wife. Has <laughs> there been any changes in your financial habit as you become a millionaire? Yeah. The just more and more of my, the money that I've made just being reinvested. Like, you know, I think after becoming a millionaire and kind of realizing the power of investing super heavily and, and kind of going all in, you know, investing, trying to invest 80% of my earned income, et cetera. I think once I started seeing the rewards, like after a couple of years and finally selling the first property and being like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. Uh, that really kind of just like retrained my brain. And, and, and now, you know, it's just everything gets reinvested for me almost outside of the, my minimum amount of capital that I like to keep in the bank account for my liquidity. But uh, yeah, after becoming a millionaire, it's just I think the frugality kind of picked up because I realized like, well, if I just keep sacrificing and delaying that gratification, by the time I'm 40, I mean, I'm about to be 35. By the time I'm 40, I feel like my goals, I'll blow past them. If I just keep focused, don't, don't be like, oh, cool, you made a million dollars, you know, you, you've made it. Like if I just push that off, I'm going to blow through my goals. And so I, I've, that's kind of been my mindset shift, I think. Nice. Any last words of advice for somebody who's just starting out? Yeah, I think, uh, let's see, the first thing coming to my head if you're just starting out is that it takes time and you're going to make mistakes. I've never heard, I don't think it, there's, it, you know, an investor that becomes wealthy that's never made mistakes doesn't exist. If you're going to get into real estate investing, it does, it does, there is not a real estate investor that hasn't made mistakes, hasn't stumbled. And I think that if you're, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to become a millionaire, Something that I struggled with was, you know, even though, you know, it took a couple of years and again, like a lot of my wealth is on paper and assets, but it's, you have to wait, you have to have patience. It's a slow game, even in real estate. You know, I was lucky in the sense that I timed it pretty well. If I were starting today, it would take me longer than two to three years to hit that. And a lot of people won't admit that. But I think, you know, my advice to you, if you're listening to this is accept the fact that this is going to take a while. Accept the fact that you're going to make mistakes and just stick to it because at the end of the day, if you stay consistent with investing with proven methods, whether you're investing in index funds or real estate, if you stay consistent with it and learn from your mistakes, I promise you, you will see results in time. Awesome. Where can people uh, get in touch with you, hang out with you, learn a little bit more about Sean? So uh, the number one way I want you guys to get in touch with me or reach out to me is through Instagram. I'm putting out daily content now um, and, and I'm putting a lot of effort into that. So you can follow along with my projects and things like that. Uh, Sean underscore D Martell. I'm sure you can get the spelling for that because my last name is spelled weird by looking at the podcast episode. And the other ways you can go to investorshawn.com, S-H-A-W-N. And there you can, you know, you, there's links to my social media in case you forget. Uh, you can check out videos and my podcast and all that kind of stuff there. Awesome. That's Sean with a net worth of three and a half million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, you guys.
Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.